publishing a book is a victory, but it's not the end. After you sweep up the confetti and wash the champagne flutes, what's next? Authoring Onward is the podcast about those steps after your first publication. Going from published author to having a long-term writing career. And that has no clear endpoint and plenty of ups and downs. But telling stories for the long-term is so, so worth it. Sit back, listen, and together, let's author Onward. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Authoring Onward. I'm Connie B. Dowell. Um, And also, I'd like to say happy Thanksgiving to everyone listening in the U.S. um, Because even though right here as I'm recording and putting this out, it's the week before the week of Thanksgiving, but we are actually taking the week of Thanksgiving off. So it will be two weeks before another episode of Authoring Onward comes back. And then we'll have, if I'm doing the math right, I think three more episodes left in the autumn season. So more Authoring Onward fun to be had. But today on the podcast, Joy and I talked to Valerie Neiman about her books and about how she creates really vivid settings. And setting is something that a lot of authors want to explore more, to deepen more, or even just for newer writers, it can be a bit of a struggle to understand when someone talks about writing setting as a character. And so we're going to go into what all of that means and how Valerie creates vivid settings and evokes vivid settings in her book and how you can do the same in your own work. Let's have a listen. So today on the podcast, Joy and I are talking to Valerie Neiman. Welcome to the show, Valerie. Good morning and thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. So would you like to share with our listeners a little bit about yourself and your writing? Okay. Uh, Well, I'm pretty much an Appalachian writer and and now slash Southern. I did grow up, however, in Western New York State in part of Appalachia in that corner. Then I went to West Virginia University and worked as a journalist in North Central West Virginia for many years, was also a, had a farm. And then um, things changed and I ended up moving to North Carolina, worked for a newspaper, uh, went back to school and got my MFA and then ended my career teaching creative writing at North Carolina A&T State University. Yeah. So long career, lots of lots of interesting places, um, which we'll come to in a minute. But would you like to tell um, tell listeners a little bit about um, some of your recent books? Okay. Uh, well, my most recent is um, In the Lonely Backwater. And this is my reading copy. You can see all these little tags hanging out. So oh, I'll read this little piece. I'll read this little piece. So that came out in May of this year. And it is set in North Carolina at uh, Lakeside Marina. And uh, in it, a young woman is confronted both with trying to keep her own life together and figure out who exactly she is against the background of a murder investigation for which she is the prime suspect. So Mm -hmm. things are a little tough for Maggie. 
Yeah. Yeah, definitely hard to figure yourself yourself out when you are suspected of murder, I would imagine. <laughs> um, so that kind of brings us um, to like some of the, the topics we want to talk about today, because I know In the Lonely Backwater has been really plays for having a really strong sense of setting. And the way that people sometimes phrase it as, as the setting was a character. Mm-hmm. Um, so do you have any kind of any tips or starting advice for writers who want to create really rich settings. Okay. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that is important for me is that the landscapes, whether they're realistic or kind of creepy because I move into other genres, that they need to be fully, fully realized. So I draw on on things that I know. I, I sailed a small boat on Car Lake for seven or eight years. And during that time, you know, um, it was on a slip there. So spent time there on the boat in that marina kind of community and also wandering around in the woods and the the parklands and things around it. So I just sort of gathered all of this kind of, okay, I thought I hit my microphone, sorry. I I gathered all of this kind of material uh, just as part of living And then I started keeping a journal because I knew the sailing was coming to an end. And so I was sort of writing everything down and noting when things were blooming and when I saw butterflies and mushrooms. And I wasn't quite sure where it was going, except that it felt important. So I I amassed this material. And meanwhile, I had been um, sort of you know, working on a novel. I had some different ideas about a young woman out in the woods. And a couple of other things came together to make In the Lonely Backwater, one being I found my high school senior yearbook, and in it, a young woman had written a note about, I hope we can put these misunderstandings behind us, and had signed it love. So that got my narrative impulse clicking, because I was thinking, what happened? I didn't remember anything. So I started thinking about those passionate loves and hates of uh, high school. And that came together with the sailing and the woods lore and also my many years as a police reporter. And from the first line when I started writing the book, it, it really took off. And I had that really deep setting. And that deep setting for me means things like, you know, the plants and animals, the seasons, but also the people of a place. Uh, everything from going to the the churchyard of this historic church and looking who was buried there. What are the names? Who were the settlers here? Who was buried in the 1700s? And reading the local newspaper and wandering around in the woods and seeing things, finding the the kind of things that happen when they flood uh, a river valley where people have lived. And so there are roads that go nowhere. There are plantation houses and fallen in houses and then new communities that spring up around it. So I was just gathering all of that, the smells, the sights, the sounds, uh, because these are where, this is the landscape through which Maggie would move. And I I do that with all of my books. So we're going to talk about To the Bones, I think a bit later, and I'll I'll talk a bit about that that one. Yeah, yeah, fascinating. Um, Were you saying something? I just was saying that's awesome. I love how you brought all these experiences together and I super love how 
you mentioned that you um, utilized a journal to start collecting things. That's that's fabulous, fabulous. Yeah, that's a fabulous tip for people who live in or are traveling to the setting that they're writing about um, is to just document, document, document like that to, to get all those sensory details. And I love that the inspiration was whatever disagreement happened all those years ago. <laughs> yeah, I, I think everything's up in your head and then something just comes in and it's the catalyst and everything clicks together. And, and that, that is what happened with this book. The voice is always very important to me. And when her voice came, you know, then I knew I was going. Terrific. Uh -huh. Terrific. Um, yeah. So you mentioned lots of um, journaling and, um, and recording in that way, and just taking note of that sensory experience did, uh, and even like going into some of that the history of the place as mm -hmm. as an interesting one that I think sometimes people overlook in terms of setting research. Um, did you, you know, did you take pictures or anything? But of course you live there, so it's not so hard to go back and visit. Um, <laughs> yes, I, I actually, I did. I enjoy taking photos. And so things that I might not remember well, I did. Uh, by looking at, at those images. And I use some of those in the social media promotion for the book because, hey, you know, I had them. I had pictures of the, the islands and the boats and the, you know, different, uh, this fallen in house that was almost really creepy because it, it stayed vertical. And you're thinking, how is this thing not falling in? Eventually it did. But um, I have that picture and others. Um, it was important to me to have the seasons right when things happen, you know, when the red bud is done and when the dogwood starts and how big the oak leaves are, because it just, it, to me, it just creates that deep, deep reality that people, you know, they may not have ever noticed, but they noticed this and it's like, oh yeah, that's exactly right. And, and I really want it to be right for me. It makes the, the whole book feel um, like a, a a genuine experience. Yeah, definitely. And that's one thing that um, I notice in books when they get like the flower blooms in the wrong season. Uh, and I'm like, wait yeah, a details. minute. Details yeah. appeal to readers. Details win readers over. Details mm -hmm. make them love the writing, love the voice and want to turn the next page. So that's really super. Yeah. I totally agree. And I, I don't think this is for me you know other people have different ways of working but i can't work in a setting that i haven't spent time in mm -hmm. and so i i set things in appalachia i set things in areas of north carolina that i know and if i don't know i go looking um i'm, I'm working on a historical and and um i went to that country and spent a month hiking just walking around looking at things and and paying attention attention and getting the feels and the smells, all that sensory information, so that a place that's distant in time can at least feel very immediate in, in um, the natural world. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's, yeah, those little details, they do stand out, they do matter, and they bring it to life. Um, so I think a lot of newer writers, I knew when I was a newer writer, this kind of tripped me up, the phrasing of like creating a setting 
as a character. So what does that phrase mean to you? Uh, I think the setting for my books definitely is a character. They could not take place anywhere else. Uh, to the Bones is set in the North Central West Virginia coal fields that I lived in. Uh, and this book is set at, at that marina where I spent an awful lot of time. And so uh, if the setting is so much connected to the characters and how they view the world that you can't imagine it anywhere else, then it is a character. You can't think of William Faulkner's uh, stories taking place in New York City or mm -hmm. Iowa. I mean, it's just so connected to that Southern setting. And, and I think that's the way my work is as well. And so the characters are shaped by the place they live, as we all are. They say that they can go back in people's bones and tell where they were born and grew up by the, the chemical makeup of them that's in what they ate and drank. So I think that's the way we are. Uh, I I grew up in the country. That that was what I knew. I've lived in the city. I enjoy cities, but that's always going to be in, in me as part of me. And I think for Maggie, this isolation in this marina out at the end of the road, you know, there's the lake, there's the people who who have boats there. And that's kind of her her family because her family is shattered. And so she's kind of making a world for herself and making a family and making um, connections that she doesn't have, but it's all based on, on being in this place, this specific place. And she, she talks a lot, particularly about the sexuality of the animals and plants, because she's very attracted to Linnaeus and taxonomy. And he started doing that work based on the sexual lives of plants and writes these really interesting things about the, the sex lives of plants. Well, she picks up on that. She's just examining, as she's examining her own sexuality and her own gender performance, she's looking at what the natural world does. And again, that's part of that, that whole setting and the history of the area that she, that she refers to, you know, even things like the, the train that's underneath the, the, the water because a trestle fell in with the train and people say, yo, you can still dive down and ring the bell and things like that. But that's part of the world she inhabits, which is a little bit, you know, mysterious and spooky. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely sounds atmospheric for sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so since you mentioned um, bones and and people being able to just figure out where ancient peoples lived based on their bones. Maybe this is a great segue to talk about um, uh, this similarly titled book, To the Bones. Yeah, so To the Bones is uh, set in the northern coal fields, which anyone who knows West Virginia knows it's a very different place than the southern coal fields in terms of how you access the coal you know, the, the labor history, everything else. So I went to school at WVU and then I worked uh, at papers in Monongalia and Marion counties. So I kind of grew, you know, grew up from being a, a teenager to being an, an adult and being a reporter, being a, an editor in that area. So I covered the coal industry and I covered the environment and I covered hunting and fishing and, you know, small papers, you cover everything. But that was all just such great material because it just stayed with me. So I, that book, I had been struggling to get started with a book. I didn't have a flash of inspiration like with the yearbook. 
and and I was complaining to a friend that I just couldn't get started. I had some false starts and I was really cranky. And yeah, I don't know how it came up, but something about if I was going to kill someone. And I said, well, when I lived in West Virginia, if I was going to kill someone, I'd throw the body down a mine crack. Uh, and join us exactly because those mine cracks can be way deep and nobody's going to go looking in there. And there's a lot of dead deer down there. That's where people throw their deer carcasses. So they, you know, there's this smell anyway. Uh, and so, so he true. said, pardon me? So true. Sorry. <laughs> and so uh, he said, well, why don't you? And so that started me. I thought, oh, uh, well, how does somebody get thrown down a mine crack? Why is somebody down the mine crack? And does this person survive? And he does and gets out of the mine crack and wanders into uh, a small, the edge of a small community where he, he finds a sweepstakes parlor. And uh, the woman there, he knocks on, you know, comes in. And of course, he's, he's been down in this pit full of bones because other people have been thrown down there. It's a handy disposal site. So you can imagine what he looks and smells like. He's been bashed over the head and thrown down in a hole. So this guy shows up, you know, and this woman is sort of like, whoa, you know. Uh, and so she uh, reluctantly lets him in only because he says he's been in a pit full of bones. And that catches her attention because her daughter has been missing for many, many months. And there's no reason why she or many other people seem to go missing in this community. So she lets him in because he may know something about her daughter. And this starts uh, sort of a coalescence of uh, some sort of ragged little team of people who are fighting the local coal barons who have been bleeding the community for you know, generations. And so they're, they're going on the attack against these people. And I kind of had fun with it because I was working with, you know, Appalachian folklore, ideas about things that happen down in mines, about uh, ghosts and spirits. So the other part was kind of this eco-justice angle because I'm, I'm really interested in how uh, Appalachia has suffered in terms of pollution and damage. I, I covered some horrendous coal mine bills and things like that. That was all rolling around in my head. So uh, it came together, you know, with, with these characters. He's, Derek is trying to find out why he got thrown down in the hole in the first place. Lorena is trying to find her daughter. There's a disgraced deputy and uh, a newspaper reporter, as there often is in my books, as I was one. And they go after the, the Kavanaugh's, who have, um, uh, according to legend, the ability to to uh, cut a person down to the bones, to just reduce them to nothing, you know, they're, they're so powerful that people come before them and, you know, it's like they can, they can make their life or break it. Well, there's more truth to that than it seems to be because they have some paranormal powers. And as it turns out, so does Derek. Um, gained while he was down in that hole, gained when he was bashed over the head, nobody really knows, but they end up battling uh, kind of for for Lorana, for the soul of the community. And so that book is, you know, thoroughly Appalachian. It's it's about, you know, acid mine drainage and coal mines and communities that are held hostage. I mean, people can't really leave. It's not like the days where, 
you know, the coal camps where you had the company store. But if you've got your home and your family there, how do you go? Where do you, who do you sell your house to? Where do you go? You learn to get along in a place that may be very difficult. So that was the genesis of uh, To the Bones. And I um, enjoyed that book uh, a great deal. And, and West Virginia University Press published it, which made me very pleased. Yeah. Yeah, so I can really see that influence of all um, all those different aspects of place that really come up when you know a place really well. Um, I think a lot of us, when we're first thinking of setting, we're thinking maybe of the visuals. Um, yes. And then there's, but there's so much more to it. And not even just, as you mentioned, there's the, what we think of as the five senses, but like all that background, the folklore, the history, all all those less surface things that mm -hmm. come when you know a place really well. I think um, I usually mention Russell Banks because he wrote a book called Cloud Splitter about John, John Brown. And he did so much deep research, not just about the raid on Harper's Ferry, but his childhood and young adulthood in the Adirondacks where his father was a wool merchant and so you know he knows all this stuff about how they got the wool and how they you know were tricked by people and how they tricked other people and how they sold it and packaged it and on and on and on but he wanted to feel that he read the newspapers of the time he read these accounts of the wool trade and and so you know you get all all of this material and it's just in the back of your mind uh, ideally research you do it and then you kind of set it aside and write because you want it to just be part of you and that you don't have to go back and, you know, I'm going to put this in, I'm going to put that in. It, it just kind of flows in just the way the, the setting does. It just uh, unfolds almost like a movie as you're going. Mm -hmm. Well, Valerie, it does take a lot, as we as you've explained beautifully so far, um, to uh, everything you have to absorb, you have to collect, and then you you know, you sit down and you start working, but you can't put it all in, can you? No, no, you really can't because then you can end up with the kind of book that's ponderous. And I think we've all read where there's so much detail to the point that you're just overwhelmed. You'll have to choose the, the proper details, the telling details, the ones that, that, that bring it to life. It's sort of like making a map or something. You're not putting in the actual rocks and trees, but you're giving us a sense of how this place fits together. And so, you know, I think you want, it's hard to figure out what is enough. Some people write much more richly than others. Others are more uh, spare. I think my years as a newspaper reporter and as a poet were really good because you have to have limitations. They tell you you've got 12 inches on page one and all of a sudden something happens and they say, cut it down to eight. Yeah, and you've got to get all, all the, the right materials still in eight inches. You thought you had 12 and it's amazing, but you can do it. And, mm -hmm. and I think that training, uh, my books don't tend to be long and ponderous. They tend to read pretty fast because I, I try to get the right details in, but not overwhelm the reader. Yeah. Yeah. So definitely it's, it's not just about the richness of experience, but making the right choices. Definitely. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So, um, oh, do you have another question you wanted to ask, Troy? No, you go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> um, 
Um, I was just wondering, like, if you've got somebody who's listening to this, who's thinking, oh, um, I really want to write richer settings. I want to develop my setting as a character. Um, what's like maybe a practical next step that like they could finish listening to this podcast and maybe do um, okay. to, yeah, to, to take that next step? I think I would say, look first to your own experience. What places do you know pretty well? And I'm not saying you had to live there all your life, but you should have spent, you know, some time there, you know, hopefully years, but at least months where this stuff has become part of you. You got used to the where the wind blew. You got used to the certain smells uh, of a town. You know, if you went walked outside, did you smell tobacco? Did you smell barbecue? Did you smell pluff mud at the coast? So that, you know, you, you kind of have this whole sensorium that you're not thinking about at the top level but it's down there. And so when you have the character walk out in your book and the wind is from the West and they can smell the tobacco factory, you know, that kind of thing that you're not going to, you know, have made copious notes, but you kind of just got it. And then I think you can go and do the, the kind of searching of walking around specific places, uh, using maps, using uh, diaries that people have left, using um, photographs, uh, videos. We've got a lot of, of material that then can help us. But I think that essentially that experience is what makes it ring true, is that is that you know this place well enough to know you're going to smell the tobacco factory. And mm -hmm. I don't think that you can necessarily research all that. You may be able to do that. I mean, I know that that people who are, are authors who hire researchers and they say, well, I wanna set my next book in San Francisco, go and you know, get me all this material and they do and they, and they write the book. But these tend to be you know, kind of maybe genre books, not, not a genre because my books are considered genre, but you know, murder mysteries, romances where you know, people tend to read a lot of them and they, and they read pretty rapidly. So, Although I love genre, I like literary genre. I like to dig deeper. And so that's why I'm so much into setting as character setting, uh, deep setting uh, rather than um, just kind of a superficial. And I write in science fiction, fantasy, horror sometimes. And in that area, you, you talk about actually world building, making a world. I don't think it's so different even when you're using a contemporary setting. You're still building a reality. Uh, when you're building a, you know, historic fantasy reality, you have to think about, you know, how did people live? What did they use for money? What did they eat? Uh, what were their boundaries of their world? What do they think about the world? And if you're doing something that's like off-planet science fiction, then you just multiply that because now you've got to create, you know, the physics and chemistry and biology of an, of an alien place. So that kind of world building that you see in science fiction and fantasy, I think is just you know, a little bigger than what we do with contemporary settings, but I think it's in the same vein. I think I think you need to do the same same kind of work when you go into a a restaurant in this place. What's on the menu? What do local people eat? Uh, I was just up in Pennsylvania, and I walked into a place, and they had scrapple. Don't see scrapple down here. Wouldn't see scrapple in the Southwest, uh, but that's just part of that local milieu. Um, 
I'm just thinking of the things I saw that that come back. Uh, snow emergency routes. I haven't seen that since I lived in New York State, where it's like, you can't park here if we get more than two inches of snow. You have to park on the mm -hmm. other side of the street and they alternate. Uh, and, and those things are, again, give the ring of truth to somebody who's been in a little Pennsylvania or Maryland town, and you talk about these things is going to make it feel like a genuine place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, all sounds like great um, actionable tips for folks who want to dive really deep into a setting they know really well, or even for folks who maybe aren't diving as deep, but like if you're visiting someplace and you know you want to set a story there, then you can start taking note of all that stuff while you're there. Yeah, carry those journals mm -hmm. around, you know. Uh, and, and for me, sometimes I don't have a journal, but I use my phone, take pictures, or you know, put in the notes. You can because you'll forget. I mean, that's just what we do. We things cycle and we forget. But you can make those notes, and if, even if it's a very fragmentary thing, it's going to pop that right back up into your mind if you if you give it just a few words so that you kind of go back there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, Joy, did you still have um, some questions you wanted to ask? I did. I did. I'm your career, Valerie, is so impressive and you are a very busy novelist and poet and educator. How does Valerie stay on top of Valerie's game so that she can <laughs> always keep this stuff together? Um, what kind of things do you do to take care of yourself, your creativity? I think that's a, a great question because you know, we're thinking more about that in terms of people's work lives. But when you're a writer, you have two work lives, if not more. I mean, you most people work at something and then they write. There are not many people who are full-time, able to be full-time writers. And now writing is even more complicated because we have to do so much marketing as writers that we didn't do 20 or 30 years ago. That was up to the publishers and you didn't do that. And now it's social media and all of these things that you, you really need to do. And that all takes time. So uh, I think one thing uh, I mentioned being a journalist and that good training on economy of language and brevity and stuff, but also being a journalist, I learned to work in fragments of time. I don't have children. And I understand that people who have children also learn this skill, but you have to think, okay, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to at least rough this in, or I'm going to write down the dialogue because I'm not sure where I'm starting, but I know I want these quotes in there. And you can at least be typing. You can at least be getting something uh, down uh, while your brain is kind of processing. And I think that we get a lot of these guidance that says you must write every day and you must write this many hours or this many words. And I think, you know, that's nice for people whose lives are not complicated by demanding jobs or families or running a farm or doing other things. I think you have to have your, your hands on your writing every day in some way, but it may be rereading and revising or it may be researching you're not always going to be turning out X number of words a day, or at least I'm not. Uh, some days the words flow, some days it's, you know, like pulling them out with a claw hammer, trying to get another word to come out. So uh, if you're just, if your work is in your head, 
even sometimes you're doing something else, especially if you're doing something that lets your mind kind of roll free. For me, it used to be snapping beans. I could be snapping beans and stuff would be coming to me because my mind could just be free. I didn't have to pay attention. And then you, you capture those, those bits and pieces um, because you can work on them later. I keep multiple projects going. Uh, I'm working on a sequel to To the Bones and that's you know about a third of the way done, I think. And I'm working on poetry and I have a novel going around that's the first of three in a series and we'll see what happens with that. So, you know, all of those things are kind of happening and then I'm doing my newsletter and I'm doing social media and, you know, it, it just goes on and I'm retired now, I'm recently retired. So I was doing all of this stuff when I was also teaching classes because you, you just found a way to make it all work. And then I think you, like you say, self-care, you need to watch out for yourself. And that includes exercise, getting outdoors, being out in the world. It includes, you know, having fun. And I try to make things fun, whatever I'm doing. I was just up to Gettysburg. I said I was in Pennsylvania. I read at Gettysburg College, which was really special. And so it was a long trip from where I live. I made it a two-day trip and I enjoyed, you know, eating some good pizza one place. I enjoyed walking on the CNO Canal, you know, looking around, just, you know, not just sort of driving myself, which I could have. I could have gone up there in one day and done the reading and I would have been so exhausted and I wouldn't have enjoyed it. So I, I said, no, it's a little mini vacation of a sort. And I think that you can do those things to both take care of yourself and, and you're still also gathering material. It's all material. And so just being in this environment and, and walking around, I mean, this stuff is in the back of my head and I might not set a book in Gettysburg, but I got enough stuff up there that if somebody said, yeah, I'm from Gettysburg, I could use some things that this person might say that would give it some texture uh, rather than just being you know, a, a purely imaginary place. Mm -hmm. So I think we're always working in some way. It's all up in our heads. Uh, and, and you can do that and still also have a life. Wonderful. Snapping beans. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> That's when I had a big garden and put up a lot of food. I mean, I don't have the energy now. I'll admit it because I'm looking back and, you know, there was a time in my life where, uh, in on the, the farm that we built in, in West Virginia, my ex-husband and I were building a house. I was a reporter at a small daily, which meant my hours were not 40 hours a week. Things happen, you had to come back, et cetera. Uh, I was working on novels, I was working on poems, I was getting a big organic garden going, planting a small orchard, taking care of cattle. All of that was going on all at the same time. And I just wonder, you know, how I did it all, but I did. And so um, I think it's possible. <laughs> e eating right, eating fresh vegetables, like fresh yeah. green beans is probably part of it. <laughs> and that's part of it, yeah. And then uh, later when I was uh, in North Carolina, I was writing and working at the newspaper. And then I was 
going to the university to work with their journalism program. So I was kind of had two halftime jobs that were two, three quarter time jobs because that's the way that goes. And I went back to school and got my MFA and somehow I was doing all that. So, you know, you kind of find the, the, the ways to do these things. And some days you're just tired and you just say, I'm going to watch TV and that's okay. Yes, it is. Well, thank you. That was wonderful. Yeah. Well, thank you. Um, any other questions you have about just setting or working between fiction and poetry or anything like that? No, yeah, I think we may have exhausted our list of questions, but it's been wonderful to chat with you. Um, wondered if you had any parting thoughts for listeners. Uh, I think never give up on your work. And it's so easy to do when you're a, a writer and the world seems to be against you. It's tough out there. Uh, the, the whole thing has changed so much in the years I've been writing. My first book, I'm, I'm afraid to say it because people will think I'm you know really superannuated, but my first book came out in 1988 and it was an entirely different landscape as a writer than it is today. Uh, I think it's so challenging because there's so much, um, uh, it's harder and harder to get in the bigs. It's, you know, you have to have an agent. There's only five big publishers, that's it. Almost was four until they turned down the Penguin Random House merger. And so it's so concentrated. And so you have to get an agent. Agents are pulling their hair out, trying to represent their clients and get their work in there. So people are turning more and more to the academic press like uh, WVU and the small press where you get this support. I, I'm My new book, Black, uh, In the Lonely Backwater, came out from Regal House, which is a woman-owned press in North Carolina. And they've got a great catalog. They, you don't have to have an agent to get in. And then they're so supportive of their authors. And their authors are supportive of each other. And that you look for that kind of community now because uh, you are working really, really hard. So I would say find your community you know, don't give up on your work, keep sending it out. You know, you hear about people who have sent a, a, a book out 60 times, 70 times, and it gets turned down and turned down, and then it hits, it finds the right person and it does well. So you just, you know, keep going one foot in front of the other and keep sending your work out and making it better. Yeah, absolutely. So Great parting words. Um, well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Valerie. Uh, where can folks find you and your books online? Uh, I am on social media as Val Neiman, and it's spelled oddly, N-I-E-M-A-N. So people have put it the other way, <coughs> will not find me. So I'm on Twitter and Instagram. I, I have a little bit of a toe in, in, in TikTok. You know, I know that's really a younger person's game, but I thought, you know, somebody did a TikTok about my book and it really made me happy. And so I wanted to go see it. So I have a couple of things up on there, but uh, I don't see myself doing a lot of it. I'm on Facebook and my website is valneeman.com. Uh, so you can find me all over the place. My, my books are not in every bookstore in America, but they're in fine independent bookstores in West Virginia and North Carolina and Virginia and other places, as well as, of course, at the online retailers. Yeah. Well, great. Thank you so much again for coming on the show and chatting. Yes, thank you so much. This was wonderful, Valerie. 
Thank you again for listening, and I hope you enjoyed that interview with Valerie. So just as a reminder, we've got links in the show notes to connect with Valerie and learn more about her books and about her and links to get in touch with me or with Joy about our own editorial and coaching services. Um, Now I can only speak to my own availability, but I know that for me personally, I have just a little bit of availability left in December. Uh, So reach out if you are looking for some editing help before the end of the year, or if you'd like to go ahead and get on the editorial calendar for 2023. Again, final reminder, we won't be releasing an episode next week due to the holiday. So we'll be back in your speakers or earbuds or headphones or however it is you're listening to this in two weeks time. Until then, happy writing.